Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. All right, so we are in our fifth week of our End Times Bible study, and uh, we will we will get to the vials and the beasts and, and all that stuff eventually. Uh, we got, uh, this is a 13-week study, so we're just really kind of laying the foundation of it. Um, but this morning, or this evening, we're going to go to the book of Daniel. And there is a reason for jumping back into the book of Daniel. Any really study you do of the end times is going to take you to Daniel. Uh, Daniel and Revelation are kind of complementary books. Uh, Daniel gets visions of the end times that we see happen in Revelation. So we really got to understand what's going on there. Uh, but I want to give you a, just a kind of an update real quick where we came from. Uh, we spent the first week looking at the outline of the book of Revelation, uh, really seeing what each chapter talks about. And, of course, chapter 1 talks about what John saw, and John saw Jesus. Then chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are. Uh, and we've, we've looked and seen that that's the church age, that's the age that we are in. So chapter 2 and 3 are what we are living now. Then chapters 4 to 22 are the things to come. And I know that's what everybody wants to know about. That's why you're all here, because you want to know what's coming. Uh, well, we'll figure it out one day. Um, and so last week we started looking at the present age. Um, so we saw the timeline of the church and, and what the uh, church age is. And then last week we started looking at the present, the present age uh, based on Jesus' prediction of it found in the book of Luke. And we learned that what we are, we are in, what Jesus calls the age of the Gentiles. But we really have to find out when that started. So to find out when that started, we have to go back in time. And we have to see three things that happen for us to define when the age of the Gentiles started. And the three things Jesus told us about was that Israel would be defeated uh, and led away captive from Jerusalem, and that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and all that would happen from a Gentile nation. And that happened back in... 605 B.C. was the first time that a Gentile king did all three. That's when Nebuchadnezzar came in with Babylon. He defeated Israel. He destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. Are Danny and Trudy having marriage problems? Why? I just noticed that they're separate. <laughs> there's Trudy. There's Danny. <laughs> just like, that's, that's weird. I don't normally see that happening. Um... But so in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, led the Israelites out of Jerusalem into captivity, and occupied all of Israel, including uh, Jerusalem. And that has a, been a pattern that has continued until this day. Now, there, there had been times in the Bible and in current times where they're kind of peace times, but even today, Jerusalem and Israel, they're really, what they do is dictated by the Gentile nations around them. Uh, even part of Jerusalem is controlled by Gentile nations. The Dome of the Rock is on the place where Solomon's Temple stood, and Israelites cannot get in there because the Muslim Gentile nations are controlling it. So we can look way back at 605 B.C. and say this was the start of the uh, age of the Gentiles. And so these events were recorded in uh, the book of Daniel. And so today we're going to start looking at Daniel's age of Gentiles. Daniel chapter 2 is a, 
uh, chapter where Daniel interprets a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. This dream uh, bothers him, and he's not really sure uh, what's, gonna, what's going on. He doesn't want to tell anybody what's going on. So we're going to start reading in chapter 2, starting in verse number 1. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Anybody have those bad dreams? Well, yeah, we got them all there. You know how many times I've woken up in the morning and April's mad at me for something I did in her dream? I, she's always mad at me for stuff her subconscious does. Uh, verse 2, Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans uh, for to show the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show thee, show the interpretation. That's a reasonable request. When you, you know, go to someone who you want to interpret your dream, you say, hey, I had a dream, it bothered me, can you tell me what it means? It's reasonable for them to say, well, why don't you tell us what the dream was, and we'll kind of explain it to you. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is a lot of things. Reasonable ain't one of them. Uh, verse 5, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream, with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. So the, this dream bothered the king so much that he was losing sleep. He, he, wasn't, he, just, he was very anxious. But it is one of those things where you have a dream and you wake up and you're like, I know I dreamed a dream, but I'm not sure what I dreamed kind of these vague memories. So he didn't really know what the dream was. And so he tells these astrologers of Chaldeans, hey, I need you to interpret it, but I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You tell me what the dream is. You tell me what the dream means, or I'm going to slaughter your entire family. Um, now, this is a, obviously a difficult situation for these sorcerers and magicians and Chaldeans and wise men that Nebuchadnezzar had brought in. Now let's get down to verse number 26. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? So Daniel kind of gets word uh, about the king's demand, and the, the word goes out throughout the palace, because David is one of the king's advisors, that, hey, if no one can tell the king what his dream was and what it means, he's going to kill all of us. So Daniel goes to God and asks God to give him the dream and the interpretation. So Daniel goes before the king and says, before you start lopping off heads, I can tell you what you dreamed and what it means. Uh, then verse number 37. I'm sorry, 20, 27. Uh, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot, cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers show unto the king, but there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. Uh, as for thee, so this is the first time we actually find out what the dream is. Uh, as for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, which had come to pass hereafter. And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me... This secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thine heart. So Daniel basically tells him, look, the, the vision that God gave me about your dream, it's not for my benefit, it's not for my glory. I'm not trying to make myself uh, a, a known figure in your kingdom. 
I'm just trying to help out, you know, these other guys, you know, my friends, these people who, they didn't do anything wrong just because they can't interpret your dream, because no one can, but God gave it to me. But God didn't give it to me for my benefit. He gave it to me for the kingdom. Um, Thou, O king, sawest and beheld a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken into pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is a dream and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. So God reveals this, this, uh, this dream to Daniel and it is a very odd dream. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this statue. I think you have it in your notes. <clears throat> that's uh, towering over the city, and it's made of uh, all kinds of different metals in different places. Um, and so God reveals to Daniel what the dream is, and then also what it means. Now, later in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to get to that next week, Daniel has a dream about four strange beasts. Uh, a lion with wings, a, a saber-toothed bear, uh, another, a three-headed leopard with wings, and then what is known as the unknown creature. Um, so he has this dream of these, these, these strange beasts. Now, both these dreams are two sides of the same coin. Uh, they are revealing to Nebuchadnezzar and to Daniel events that will happen in the what Daniel calls the latter days, or the end times. <clears throat> now, an actual photo of Daniel explaining the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you know, they took that with their cell phone way back in the day. Um, now, Nebuchadnezzar desperately wanted to know what this dream meant. Why had God given him this dream? So we want to look at Daniel's interpretation of his dream and what it meant. So look down in uh, Daniel 2, chapter number uh, 30, verse number 36. <clears throat> this is a dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. Now notice, he said, a king of kings not the king of kings. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful king, the most powerful man in the world. But there is a king greater, and that's, of course, King Jesus, who will come back and set up his kingdom. Um, Thou art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So for time, uh, Daniel says, God is allowing Babylon to be the most powerful nation in the world. And it's represented by the head of gold. So the head of gold is, is Nebuchadnezzar, is the nation of Babylon. Look at the size of the Babylonian Empire. Um, this is during their peak. It went all the way from Greece to India and down into Africa. So, uh, uh, according to Daniel and really to those people in the area, Babylon, their empire covered the whole known earth to them. Now, there were people in other parts of the world they didn't know about, but to the people in that area, they're like, you know, Babylon, 
covers everything. They're the most powerful nation in the world. Now look at verse number uh, 39. And after thee shall rise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Now, Daniel said, after Babylon falls, another kingdom will rise up. Then another kingdom will rise up after that one. Now, these, these kingdoms rising up do not happen at the same time. They are sequential events. Babylon's first, then there's a second kingdom that is inferior to Babylon, but still controls all the world. Then there's a third kingdom that rises up to conquer whatever conquered Babylon that is inferior to the second kingdom, and they also will cover the entire world. They rule over the entire earth. So the statue represents a timeline of the age of the Gentiles. Um, so whatever happens from head to toe is a timeline of how the the age of the Gentiles is going to go. We know that because of what Jesus told us back in Luke. Nebuchadnezzar is the first Gentile nation to defeat Israel, to lead them away captive, and to destroy Jerusalem, just like Jesus said he would. So, every kingdom that comes after Babylon has to do the same things to Israel. So any kingdom represented by the statue has to be a Gentile nation that defeats Israel, that leads them away captive, and that destroys and occupies Jerusalem. So what are these other kingdoms that God's telling us about? Whatever kingdom it, has to, whatever kingdom it is, it has to meet the same criteria. Be a Gentile nation, be a dominant power, not just a dominant power in the world, has to be the dominant power in the world. So if there's a nation that you can, can say is a powerful nation in the world at a certain time in history, but I can name one that's more powerful, you're wrong. They've got to be the most powerful nation in the world. Not just a powerful nation, the most powerful nation in the world. Um, and they also have to be in possession of Babylon. Now why is that important? Why is it important that they be in possession of Babylon? Because they have to conquer Babylon. So they have to own the same lands that they own. They have to possess the same things. Um, these are successive nations. So they are supplanting a prior kingdom. So when Babylon is in charge, the capital is in Babylon. But when they fall, whoever defeats them has to conquer their capital and take away all their lands. It can't just be one battle won. It has to be a whole annihilation. Yeah. Babylon today is what you showed us on the map. Well, that's where they're. That's where the. That's what their nation encompassed. I mean, all of now. that is now. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, that's what. Yeah, they had Libya, Egypt. So one powerful Gentile nation has to conquer all that. Uh huh. You're understanding. So, um, whatever nation comes in has to defeat Babylon in their capital and destroy them. So whoever comes after Babylon must occupy Babylon, and every successive nation has to do the same thing. Has to utterly destroy whatever nation's in charge and occupy all of their lands. Um, for the same reason, they also have to occupy Jerusalem. So, 
We know the first nation is Babylon. The second nation is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's just the Persian Empire, but we see them in the book of Daniel as well. They come in and conquer Babylon, take over all the land, but here's their land. Notice what they're occupying. There's Libya. That's where Babylon was, Egypt, Persia. So they are occupying the same territory. They have taken over the land. Uh, huh? That would be the silver. Um, so that's the, the silver is the Medo-Persian Empire. Then we have the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire was led by Alexander the Great. Notice what they... The head down. We'll get to that. The statue, the next slide shows you all of it. I'm just showing you their landmass. So they occupy the same area that Babylon occupied and the same area that Persia occupied. Uh, so they conquered Persia and Jerusalem. So we have the first three empires. The Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire. Now, what is the statue in the shape of? A man, a person. What happens when you get below the, the stomach of a person? You get legs. The anatomy of the statue gives us a division. Ah, light bulb. Now, <laughs> the statue naturally divides at the legs because, well, that's what people do. You know, we're not mermaids. We have legs that divide. Uh, it reflects something about the nature of the kingdom. When Alexander the Great died, does anyone know what happened to his kingdom? It was divided into east and west. So we had an east-west division of the Greek Empire. It was given to his top four generals. Two of them ruled in the east, and two of them lived in the west. That east-west division has not changed since that time. When people speak of the world, we talk about the east and the west. The eastern hemisphere, the western hemisphere. When you think of the east, what do you think about? China. The Middle East. When you think of western, we think of America and Canada, North America and those things. The only place that they ever talk about north and south is in America. No one else cares about North and South internationally. They only care about East and West when it comes to talking about international borders. Um, now, we have to look. So we know that after the Greek Empire, there is a division, an East-West division, but we've got to figure out the next uh, kingdom. So look at Daniel chapter 2 again. Look at number uh, verse number 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all things, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it strength of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdoms shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but shall, now cleave, shall not cleave to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. When you, how many, anybody here, a potter, do pottery? 
when you're making pot, pottery, pottery. <laughs> and you've got the clay, uh, and you got the clay, <laughs> do you you put you put iron you put metal in it? All right, well, you're not helping me here. <laughs> On the outside, but not you don't mix it together because it doesn't it doesn't stick. Yeah, clay and iron do not mix. You can't make a supportive statue. Now, you can have iron and you can wrap it in clay, but you can't chop up a little piece of clay, mix it together, and expect it to be strong. It's, it's got some aspects of strength, but it's also got some, some fragility to it. And that's what uh, God is telling us about this fourth kingdom. Now, it looks odd, but it's really easy when you understand what's going, what's gonna, going on here. The fourth kingdom, God says, will break all the previous kingdoms into pieces and pretty much erase any image of them, any recollection of them. So we had Babylon, we had Persia, we have Greece, but these are all monolithic empires. One huge nation ruled by one man controlling most of the world. The fourth kingdom will not be like that. The fourth kingdom is going to be a divided kingdom that is loosely aligned with other nations to form uh, kind of a, a, a alliance where some of them are strong, some of them are weak, but they are working together during some times for common purpose. Uh, sometimes it's in strong alliances, sometimes they're in weak alliances, uh, but like pottery and iron, they're never really fully united together. They never combine into one all-powerful empire. That's going to make it a little harder to identify. Connor, do you have any idea? You're looking excited back there. Thanks, Connor. Did he know? You ruined it. <laughs> but we're not there yet. Now, we know where it begins. What nation, what empire defeated the Greeks and became dominant? Rome. The Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire went as far west as, as Scotland, went all the way to India, to North Africa, and the rest of Europe. It covered the same land as Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, but it disappeared around 700 AD. Now, where does that leave us? For a lot of people, that's where we get confused on Daniel chapter 2. Um, we start searching for how this age, the age of the Gentiles, could still be going on when we don't have a Roman Empire. But we do have a Roman Empire. Anyone ever heard of the Holy Roman Empire? The Holy Roman Empire? Huh? Yes. Yes, the Holy Roman Empire became, after the fall of the Roman Empire, it became more of a political and religious force as opposed to a military force. But the Holy Roman Empire replaced the Roman Empire uh, in, uh, after, and it was founded on December 25th, 800 A.D. Now, it was officially dissolved as an organization uh, in 1806 A.D. Uh, but there was a, an entity known as the Holy Roman Empire existing 217 years ago, which in the span of history is not long. 200 years is not a long time in history. America is older than that uh, right now. 
Um, but even after that, it didn't really disappear. It changed names, and it changed what it looks like. Look what this textbook said. The Holy Roman Empire, <coughs> and I don't write it down, so I've got to turn around. The Holy Roman Empire was not a highly centralized state like most countries today. Instead, it was divided into dozens, eventually hundreds, of individual entities governed by kings, dukes, counts, bishops, abbots, and other rulers collectively known as princes. There were also some areas ruled directly by the emperor. At no time could the emperor simply issue decrees and govern autonomously over the entire over the empire. His power was severely restricted by the very various local leaders. Sounds a lot like iron and pottery. There's some alliances, there's some strength when they're together, but they're never going to fully mix. So, you know, sometimes strong, sometimes weak. What we know is the Roman Empire has dissolved and has evolved into other things that we know today as the European Union. That all these different countries, different, they have these weak alliances that cover the same area as the Babylonian Empire, as the Persian Empire, as the Greek and Roman Empire. Uh, they're the states of Eastern Europe and Eastern Europe, and they are working together some. So the fourth kingdom is not over yet. We still have the fourth kingdom active on the earth. So it is, But it is doing what Daniel said it would. It is breaking and shattering the previous empires and removing what was there and kind of coming together. Those pieces are still doing what they were collectively supposed to do. They're still trampling Babylon. They're still trampling over Jerusalem. They are still keeping the Jewish people under their authority. Look at uh, verse number 34. Uh, Thou sawest till that stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. That was the iron and the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the thumber threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and that stone smote the image, became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. So, this stone that Daniel sees is going to hit the statue at the feet of the statue, and end the age of Gentiles. Look at, watch this. This took me an hour. You're proud of this. Boom! All gone. I couldn't get the smoke to come up. But the stone's going to come from heaven and destroy everything. And then the stone's going to become a mountain. Um, this mountain's going to grow and fill the whole earth. Here's a, another artistic image of it. Uh, so this, this falls at the end of the age. And so this is kind of what an, another artist uh, said that it was going to look like. Now, we need to understand the, the, what this rock is uh, and the importance of this rock and the mountain that fills it, and Daniel does that for us. Look back at verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much... As thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. So this is a 
prophetic dream. Um, and Daniel says this stone is going to come from heaven and it's going to be uncut by human hands. Any idea why that's important? That's part of it. Deuteronomy chapter 27, God is giving uh, Israel the, the law regarding building an altar. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole, look at the Hebrew, uncut stones, and thou shalt offer, offer burnt offerings there, thereupon unto the Lord thy God. So God tells them when they are building an altar to make a sacrifice to Him, they could not alter the stones at all. They couldn't shape them. They couldn't smooth them out. They couldn't make them nice rocks and build a pretty little altar. They had to take rocks and just pile them up in a pile. Because this was a place of sacrifice. The altar was a sacrifice for the payment of their sin. And it had to be done on top of something that was not created or carved by our hands. Because if man was allowed to shape the altar and alter the stones, then we could look at it and say, well, my work made that sacrifice a worthy sacrifice. I earned that sacrifice. Thank you. I thought so too. <laughs> so so our, our work in the Hebrew times and in the day, we have nothing to do with the sacrifice Jesus paid for us. It's not because we earned it or we deserved it or we're good enough for it. He paid the price for everyone regardless of their past, their present, or their future. We don't earn salvation, and the Israelites could not build an altar made with their... They had to use stones that God provided God's way. Um, so we have nothing to offer God. Our work has nothing to do with our salvation. He did all of it. So they were to use stones that God cut, not stones that they cut with their own hands. So what God is telling Daniel is the stone that comes down from heaven and destroys the statue, destroys these kingdoms, grows into a huge mountain that encompasses the whole earth, is Jesus Christ. When He comes, He's going to put an end to the age of Gentiles and He's going to set up a new kingdom. His kingdom. Um, and it's going to be a Jewish kingdom. Kingdom. You know why it's going to be a Jewish kingdom? Because he's a Jew! <laughs> he is the Jewish Messiah. Now, he is available to Gentiles as well, but it's going to be a Jewish kingdom ruled by a Jewish king that's going to control the entire world. So let's summarize uh, Daniel chapter 2 real quick. Um, the statue represents the four Gentile world empires. The Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the divided Roman Empire. Um, they become, these empires, they become increasingly strong, but less majestic. The empire today, obviously not as majestic as the Babylonian or Persian or even Roman Empire of the ancient days. The age of Gentile kingdoms will last until Christ's kingdom arrives. Now, the fact that these details 
lead us to two other important conclusions we need to look at. But I'm going to wait for you all to finish writing. So the age of Gentiles is the age where God is disciplining the Jews under Gentile rulers. So the end of the age of Gentiles um, is going to put an end to Gentile rule over Israel. Because even right now, we can look at an Israel... When did Israel become a, a nation-state again? 1945. Do they really have... Did they really rule themselves? They're surrounded by enemies. They can't even fully occupy their own capital. They're constantly fighting with the Palestinians. They are... Yeah, they're, they're their own nation. But... Really not. They really depend on their allies to protect them and keep them safe. So the end of the age of Gentiles is going to end Gentile rule over Israel. And the kingdom of God cannot be present on earth until the age of the Gentiles is over. So as long as Israel is not peacefully occupying their land, as long as there is no greater is if, if there is a greater power contending with them we are still in the age of the gentiles that means we are still waiting for that rock to come down we're still waiting for god to destroy the current world system and set up his kingdom the age of gentiles is the age we are we currently live in and the age to come is the age is the the kingdom that jesus sets up at his second Kingdom. This leads to the second coming. Well, again, we saw last week the, the present age, the age of Gentiles we live in, and the age to come, there's a gap. That gap is when... The, well, that's, that's when God, we're in heaven, the rapture has occurred, we're in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that the Jews and the Gentiles are still on earth, they're still fighting. Everyone loves the Jews for three and a half years, and they hate them for three and a half years. And right at the year, when it seems like they're about to be destroyed, that's when the rock comes down and sets up God's kingdom. Yeah, Daniel got a vision of God's second coming to earth, not the, the rapture. We'll, he, we'll see that in Revelation. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.